Hello, and thank you for tuning in today. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Stephanie Graff, a medical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer. In this episode, we discuss the basics of what breast cancer is and why cancers are so incredibly diverse. We also discuss the challenges and opportunities of navigating cancer in today's complex information environment. Dr. Graff is a clinician, researcher, and advocate. She's Director of Breast Oncology at the Lifespan Cancer Institute and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Brown University. I discovered her through a recent publication entitled The Rise of the Expert Patient in Cancer, From Backseat Passenger to Co-Navigator. I know that many of you listening today have been touched by breast cancer or will be touched at some point in your lives, and I sincerely hope that this conversation helps in some small way as you navigate this difficult journey. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Hello, Dr. Graf, and welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, can we get started by understanding a bit more about what it means to be a medical oncologist? So what exactly do you do for cancer patients? The medical oncologist is the person who prescribes systemic therapy, so things like pills, unfortunately chemotherapy, that dreaded word nobody ever wants me to use, and often is the person who's doing the long-term follow-up, monitoring for risk that the cancer could come back, so is often the person that you'll have your long-term follow-up care with. How did you find yourself into that career? What drew you into medical oncology? Yeah, one of my history teachers in high school used to say that whatever you do in life, you have to love to read about because our jobs will be to read about our jobs. And I found that to be really true advice. And so as I went through school, first I loved math and science. And then when I got into medical school, I loved the pathophysiology and pharmacology of cancer. But then when I got into clinical rotations, really that deep connection with humans in oncology is so unique compared to other diseases, and it just felt like home. Well, you certainly seem passionate about your work. Yeah, I love what I do. And I know that you wear many hats, so can you speak briefly to what you do aside from working directly with patients? Yeah, so obviously I work directly with patients, see patients, treat them with chemotherapy and other treatments. I also run our breast cancer research program. So I help design clinical trials. I help select which clinical trials are right for our patient population. I do consulting and advising on clinical trials locally and nationally. I write scientific papers. I work with our basic and translational scientists on understanding how their work might have clinical impact supporting grants and helping that science move from the bench to the clinic setting. I have a teaching role in an academic medical center with students and residents and fellows. And in addition to all of those hats, I also work for a nonprofit. I'm a medical advisor to the Dr. Susan Love Foundation in my free time. (laughs) Free time in quotes, right? Yes. I'm curious, how common is it amongst medical oncologists to do this research side of it as well? Is it the norm or are you a minority? Most major institutions have 
one or two, maybe a handful of thought leaders in each disease subtypes, for example, breast cancer or lung cancer, that are filling these dynamic research and leadership roles. And then a team of other physicians that are really much busier in day-to-day clinical care. And those of us that are participating in that clinical research development and oversight, it's a small community. We all know each other. Many of us are, are talking in the same meetings every month, every quarter, and all have very good relationships. Sounds fascinating and very, very stimulating and very rewarding. Yeah, I I love that academic uh, intellectual connection and debate with my colleagues as much as I love that personal human connection with my patients. I, I find that juxtaposition a really rewarding part of what I do. So I'd love to talk a bit about breast cancer as a disease and the diversity within that, because I think a lot of people use the word cancer or breast cancer as if it's a single thing. But if you study it, you know that there's much more to it than that. So can you start to unpack, like, what does the term breast cancer really mean? And what level of detail do we really need to get to people to understand what they're facing? Yeah, I think that that's so true. And I I think even worse than that, people sometimes use cancer as one word, like people come to see me with their new cancer diagnosis, and they're terrified because they saw what their grandpa went through when he had pancreatic cancer. And I'm like, whoa, that's totally different. Let's back up a little bit and regroup. So, you know, when I meet patients with a new diagnosis of breast cancer, the things that I walk them through are the type of breast cancer they have, the grade of breast cancer they have, the stage of breast cancer they have, and the prognostic profile. And those are very different things that all shape the treatment. So step-by-step, the type, the most common type of breast cancer is invasive ductal carcinoma. The vast majority of breast cancer is ductal, but there are other types. There's lobular carcinoma, there's micropapillary carcinoma, there's tubular carcinoma, and those all carry slightly different outcomes slightly different nuances and how easy they are to detect on imaging, whether or not we should do something different, like a breast MRI prior to your surgery. The grade of your cancer is reported on your biopsy. It tells us how organized your cancer is under the microscope. Grade one means it's nice and pretty and patterned and beautiful, organized. Grade three means it's messy and chaotic. It's a one, two, three scale. I tell patients that one and two are normally considered good and three is just a little bit more high risk. Sometimes patients see that they're grade three and think that that means they're stage three, which is very different. And in the modern era of electronic patient portals, Patients sometimes get that pathology report saying that they have a grade three tumor a day, a week before they talk to somebody and explain the difference. And I don't want somebody to go down a Google rabbit hole and be terrified. Staging is how big is your tumor? Are your lymph nodes involved? Is there evidence that it's spread? And that is information that we get from pictures, the mammogram, ultrasound, physical exam, And that information, normally I can tell somebody when I meet them from, again, things like 
mammography and ultrasound. And breast cancer is also staged zero, one, two, or three, four. Most breast cancer is very curable. Stage four breast cancer is cancer that is not curable, but is treatable. The prognostic profile, the last thing, is probably the biggest marker of that heterogeneity, that differenceness of breast cancer. And the three big things that we look for are the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and then something called HER2. Estrogen and progesterone are the hormonally mediated breast cancers. They are perhaps counterintuitively the ones that we see most commonly in older women. They tend to be the better behaved types of breast cancer. I think it's crazy to tell people they have good cancer, but here I am describing it as favorable. HER2 is another type of breast cancer that can be a little bit more aggressive, but we now have targeted therapy for that. So in a lot of ways, it ends up being one of the best cancers because the targeted therapy is very effective. And so then the last type of breast cancer, the third type of breast cancer is what we call triple negative breast cancer, which is really defined as an absence of the things we know to test for. So when you're triple negative, you're not estrogen or progesterone or HER2, hence triple negative. When we get to the metastatic setting, there's a few other things we test for that for the sake of simplicity on your show today, I won't mention right now, but those three markers, you know, we retest for them at different time points, especially in the metastatic setting. There's some emerging nuance. And I think that those are all things that your doctor will be going through with you at the time that you're diagnosed. Now, you talked about the grade and the stage as two of the factors. So do those tend to go hand in hand or can you have them uncoupled? Yeah, they can definitely be uncoupled because if you imagine that a higher grade tumor is growing faster in your body, maybe it starts developing I'm going to just use our calendar year for ease. If it starts developing in January and you're doing your mammogram every October, a faster growing tumor from January to October is going to be bigger in October than a slower growing tumor. So, you know, that once a year mammogram, depending on how fast your cancer is growing, might catch a faster growing tumor at a larger size than a slower growing tumor. So where grade corresponds with aggression or rate of development, that once a year mammogram tends to catch our cancers at different rates. And so it's more likely that somebody with a more aggressive or higher grade tumor gets diagnosed with maybe stage two disease instead of stage one disease. But even for the most aggressive breast cancers, we do think that they still develop over months to years, not days to weeks, which is why we're able to do screening mammograms once a year and still make a meaningful difference in terms of cancer mortality for women with breast cancer in the United States. So you you do think of grade as roughly some measure of aggressiveness, is that right? Yes, I think that's maybe the easiest way to think about it. It corresponds with prognosis like that. Okay. And then stage, you said, is a measure of the extent of size and extent of spread. 
And then the prognosis is somehow an indication of like the molecular flavor of that tumor and what actually, what mutations have, have happened and how that's manifest. Then. Perfect. Yep. Okay. <laughs> You're ready. See one, do one, teach one, like we say in medicine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I hope to not have to use this information myself, but I know that odds are someone close to me will need yeah, to understand. One in eight women. Yeah. The statistics are really quite scary. And I, I remember having that realization. I think I learned that statistic back when I was in undergrad and I had this group of 20 close friends and you just look around and you think it's definitely going to affect at least one, probably two of us. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we move on to another area that I'm excited to dig in with you, which is the opportunities and the challenges that come with today's information environment. So if you get that diagnosis or a loved one gets that diagnosis, first thing you're going to do is, you know, start doing some research online or many of us will anyways. And so that comes, that's an, an amazing opportunity, but it's also, you're going to encounter information of mixed quality. So I wanted to hear a bit about your work in that area because that's actually how I found you as a paper you wrote about the rise of the patient expert. Yeah, so I'm very involved in patient advocacy work and social media research in oncology. And I've written a paper about supporting e-patients or expert patients. I think that it's like many things, patients have a journey to becoming digital health experts, right? It is hard the first time you walk into a library to learn where to look to find the book that you're searching for. And similarly, it's hard to navigate online health information to find the most reputable sources, the most reputable experts, and figure out how to connect and interact with them in a powerful way that serves you, your loved one, or your broader patient community in a way that pays it forward or advances your own search for health information. And so I think that there are several strategies that we as physicians or we as healthcare consumers can take in order to help achieve that. I think that for those of us starting out as the lay public searching our healthcare information, my first advice is to really stick with reputable .org and sort of name brand uh, websites that you know and recommend. The, everybody knows, of course, organizations like the American Cancer Society, the professional organization for medical oncologists like me is called the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and they have a fantastic website and a patient-facing website called cancer.net that provides information for, for patients. I'm a medical advisor to the Dr. Susan Love Foundation and Dr. Love's book, which is actually, this is like, now I feel like I'm giving you a plug, is coming out in a new edition in October, is wonderful as well. The website has tons of information. There's patient information for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is actually what most insurers use to decide whether or not they should pay for your cancer therapy. So, you know, there's lots of major reputable sources that you as a patient can access and find out how to approach your care. And I think starting from there and looking at things like the citations can help funnel you in. And then moving forward, if you decide that this is something that you want to get more involved with, starting locally and moving nationally 
most disease sites, obviously I'm a breast cancer expert, but this is true across the spectrum. Most diseases have national organizations that have nationally accredited patient advocacy training that can help you become a very well-educated, successful patient advocate. So LEAD is one example. In breast oncology, Living Beyond Breast Cancer has an amazing advocacy training program. The San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium does advocacy training. Lots of organizations offer that in a way that can help empower you to serve as an advocate on clinical trial design, for grant review, doing health policy advocacy on Capitol Hill, if you want, you know, whatever feels like it ignites your passion so that maybe you can make somebody else's journey with cancer better or different. Do you find as a medical provider, it just adds an extra layer of challenge that people are coming in saying, but what about this? Why aren't I doing this? Yeah, I think that it definitely, in some ways, I just sort of expect it that people, I think that we're all looking up stuff all the time, right? I would say that I expect that patients are researching stuff. I think that there's probably a way to approach that with your physician to get the answers and engage in the dialogue that you want. I'm very open to it. It's part of, you know, it's, I've written on the subject. That's what I do. So I think it takes a lot to offend me or shock me with what you might've found on the internet that you want to bring to my attention. I'm never going to feel offended or confronted or challenged by something that somebody brings to me. But I think that there certainly are, and I've heard stories from patient advocate friends where they bring something to their physician and they feel they get the sense that their physician is like affronted, like, how dare you question me from the internet? So I think that the advice that I tend to give to patients when I'm speaking to patients groups is to consider giving your physician lead time. Like if you do use an online portal, say, send it and say, listen, I saw this and I was hoping we could talk about it. So that maybe if it's totally new, it gives your doctor a chance to learn about it themselves because they may not know anything about whether or not granola increases your risk of your nose turning purple and falling off. Spoiler alert, I don't have any evidence that granola makes your nose turn purple and fall off. I'm trying to give an absurd example on purpose. and But that gives them a chance to say, oh, look, I found this resource that shows that that is an urban legend or whatever. Or they can say, look, I found this trial across town at this other center studying this. If you're interested, I'll give them a call and send you over there. Alternatively, you can go to your physician and say, listen, I've been reading about this online and I saw all this information about this and I want to know if this is right for me or why or why not. Because it may just be that it's not right for you. For example, right now in breast cancer, one of the things that's happened recently that made national, international headlines is a trial called the Destiny Breast 04 trial that approved a new drug called Trastuzumab Durexican, or in HER2 is the brand name, for a new kind of disease entity called HER2 Low Breast Cancer. But that's only approved for metastatic breast cancer. So I have patients come all the time with stage one, stage two breast cancer that are like, but am I HER2 low? And I'm like, well, 
we didn't talk about that because it's sort of irrelevant for your clinical situation. Like you're not stage four, which is awesome. So it's not a conversation that we needed to get down into because that drug, that headline doesn't apply. But it gives us a chance to talk about what's different about that headline in their situation. That's all very helpful advice. Thank you. Now, what about advice for, I'm sure that as a patient, you have well-meaning people trying to give you advice. So any advice for navigating those situations? Yeah, I think, again, I'm not a cancer survivor. So I, what I would, my impression is that when one is diagnosed with cancer, as in many situations in life, all of your family and friends and casual onlookers really just want to help. But most humans are very poorly equipped to help. And so the only thing they know how to do is offer advice. And so that advice comes out in all sorts of forms, most of which is garbage, and most of which is simply meant to be a way to give love. And so when you are newly diagnosed with cancer and the woman at the grocery store or the man at church or the dude at the gas station says, but have you tried kale smoothies or medical marijuana or purple hair dye? The answer is, what great advice. Thank you for caring. And then you can release that and carry on with your day because they are just trying to give you love by giving you advice. And you can leave real advice in some separate bucket from those that in your circle that maybe have a higher level of expertise that you trust for that. That must be yeah, really tough and probably very common challenge. Yeah. I actually think it's kind of exhausting. The flip of that though, is that if someone you love has been diagnosed with cancer, they're tired of people offering to help them or give them advice that is actionless. What they need is for someone to just take action. So instead of saying, just let me know if I can help, say, I'm going to drive Timmy to soccer practice every Tuesday. I'm not asking, I'm telling. And just start showing up every Tuesday when their kid has soccer practice and stuffing them in your car and taking them to soccer practice because it's one last thing they have to do or organize that food train or like whatever it is that you can do, like take action instead of offer that sort of empty, have you changed your diet, started exercise, quit smoking, whatever random piece of tidbit that comes to your mind. Yeah. Are there any particular myths or misinformation that comes up again and again? And you're like, no, this is not the solution. Or (laughs) or is it just too diverse? No, probably not. I think, you know, honestly, I think that one of the myths that I still hear a lot that maybe shocks me that I think is worth repeating is that there's lots of people who think they can't get breast cancer because it does not run in their family. But only about 5% of breast cancer is mediated by our genetics. So 95% of us who are getting breast cancer are not getting it because of our genes. So keep getting your mammograms, even if you have no family history. I do think that a healthy lifestyle reduces our risk of breast cancer, 
we should all exercise and be closer to our ideal body weight and eat healthy foods and not smoke and use alcohol very minimally. But all of those things reduce our risk modestly. And, you know, if you've lived this like straight and narrow lifestyle, it doesn't get you completely off the hook and you still need to be doing cancer screening. Yeah. I went to an event once where it was a cancer survivor who was very gung-ho about lifestyle and nutrition and all this stuff. So she had latched onto the statistic that she heard somewhere that 90% of cancer is preventable because lifestyle factors matter. But I feel like that's a little bit dangerous because in it, there's this blame element that people who get cancer ask themselves, what did they do wrong? When I feel like that statistic's being distorted. I agree with that. I mean, I think that clearly there's some interplay between those risk factors, right? Like it's not that Oreo cookie that you ate last night that tipped the scales and caused your breast cancer to happen. But over longitudinally over your life, if you had consistently chosen healthful foods and exercise and closer to your ideal body weight and different genetics and healthier everything, might your risk have been lower? But all of those things are relative risk reductions. They're not zero-sum games that bring your risk to nothing. I still try to make healthy lifestyle choices for myself, but that doesn't mean that my risk is zero either. I'm still getting my mammograms. So I hope everyone else is too. Yeah. And, you know, coming at this from a geneticist, even just there's a basal rate of mutations happening in every cell all the time. And if you just look in your blood, you'll see mutations that are there. And the lifestyle choices you make might load the gun and make the odds even worse. But even if, like you said, if you do everything right, mutations happen all the time every day in so much of your body. And it's just a huge element of luck to whether one of those is in the wrong gene, in the wrong cell, and it just takes off. Yeah. Which one decides to escape? Yeah. So I find it tough to balance this message that for healthy lifestyle, which I'm very much a proponent of and very much you know, dedicated to myself with this feeling that you know I'm to blame and it's my fault and I should have had more smoothies or something. I just hope that people get this better understanding that there's so much randomness to it. Yeah, that's actually when patients in clinic ask me why they got breast cancer, I actually normally respond by saying, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, right? Because I think that's what they're asking. Yeah, it's a tough balance. You want to advocate for these things that can reduce your risk in, in a modest way, but you have to be realistic that, I mean, even... People who do everything right, if they live long enough, it's kind of like a numbers game, right? It's with enough mutations happening in enough cells in enough years, this will happen at some probability. So that's how I look at it anyways. I'm very much from the outside. So just to wrap up, are there any other messages that you wanted to give to either people who are newly diagnosed or to those who are supporting people in their journey? I mean, as I think a little bit more about the expert patient and, and digital health, I think the other topic maybe is online communities we didn't touch on. There's a Facebook group for everything now. <laughs> so, you know, there's dozens and dozens of Facebook groups for patients diagnosed with breast cancer by subtype, you know, HER2 positive, triple negative, pregnancy associated, Black women, women in California, like whatever it is, you know, metastatic, not metastatic. What I would tell patients is try to look for the group that's most like you, but 
never give consent to stay somewhere toxic. Like if you're in a Facebook group or any support group online or in real life that is not giving you support, if it's creating feelings of anxiety or dread or toxic energy, you do not have to continue to have your light shared there. You can leave because I think that there are groups that are fantastic and there are groups that are not. And luckily we have autonomy over our body and our digital presence and we can leave places that aren't right for us. That's great advice. Well, thank you for your time. I think we've covered all of the questions I had pre-planned and a little bit more than that. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and all the work that you do more broadly for patient advocacy. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, take care.